everyone, and thank you for joining us at the special episode of Scores and Pours with me, Sommelier Jill Mott, and radio host Emily Reese. Hello, hello. On today's episode, we have two guests. We have a video game composer that I've been acquainted with for a number of years. His name is Oleksa Lazochuk. And Oleksa, as a composer, has done quite a bit of work with a cellist named Blair Lofgren, who happens to be Oleksa's brother-in-law. And so we're joined today by both of those musicians, Oleksa the composer and Blair the cellist, who is the principal cellist in the Quebec Symphony and runs a chamber music festival and does many other things. So uh, super excited to share some wine with them and uh, listen to some great music today on Scores and Pours. If you want to find out more about the episode and support us financially, you can do that on patreon.com slash scores and pours. You'll find links to our merchandise there. And you can, when you support us financially, uh, you can find tiers, e- very easy way to support us. And in every case, you'll get patron only content. And in a couple cases, you'll get some free merch sent to you, which is dope. I'm Alexa. I'm a composer, music director. Um, been doing music. I, basic, actually, here's an f- interesting fact. Blair's sister, Kara, my wife, her and I were in Suzuki violin when we were three years old together, and we didn't know we were in the same class. And then we married each other <laughs> 20 years later. Wow, <laughs> that's insane. We didn't know each other, you know, for for quite a while until later, kind of university years where we actually started dating. But um, Blair and I have actually been making music since high school. Um, I had a bunch of different music projects, uh, recordings, and films and stuff I would work on, and a polka, I would, a polka band. Yeah, a polka band, Alexa and the Bunnies. Um, <laughs> we, literally, we did. We would. It was an awesome. It was kind of like Dave Matthews meets like uh, the Cosmetics, you know. Um, so we did that quite a bit, and um, Blair would play cello on that. I would do rec- recording sessions. Blair would kind of run some chamber orchestras in in Regina, Saskatchewan, when he was there you know, 20-piece, 30-piece string orchestras, and I would do recordings for them. And then I went to film school, made films that were heavily musical, brought Blair in to play on those. Blair went off to do... Uh, a performance diploma in Toronto. That's right, the, he went... the Glen Gould School. Yeah, so he went to Glen Gould in Toronto. So he went to Toronto. When I did my master's in film, I moved to Montreal, and then we, you know, were quite close and would visit each other in different cities. And then the real kind of kickoff... For real, more serious music was, uh, I guess, in 2002 when I started writing Bright Sadness. It was after 9-11, and basically, yeah, I was inspired to write a whole suite for Blair, actually. And that kind of, I would say, took it into a different stratosphere. Like, mm. our our musical relationship was strong before that, but um, that was really the nexus of, or the launching point for something much more... Um, Serious. Well, I think we started yeah. to develop our, our sort of a, a common musical language and how to, to decipher what we wanted to say together, and that, that was a big part of it. And I mean, it's so funny, Alexa, because I I met you first primarily as a video game composer through some of my other passions in life. But then when I learned about Bright Sadness and listened to it, it it really affected me deeply. And we ended up doing quite a lengthy interview about it many years later. But um, it's just funny to to learn to have you know kind of learned your different musical sides you know that there's this whole stage side as well uh you know in addition to the media side yeah um so uh, on the music side for me i've kind of done a lot of concert work for choirs or orchestras or a lot of chamber stuff or solo stuff um and then the media side has been more of a you know making a a living to support the family and and also it's kind of cool because that's like Blair for example on Dead Rising 2 because we worked together so much I co-wrote the theme song Kill the Sound which was like this really aggro heavy electronic kind of heavy rock piece as the main theme song for um, 
uh, Dead Rising 2. It had like Ogre from Skinny Puppy and like, but Blair, I wrote parts featuring like Blair playing solo <laughs> cello and stuff. And in <laughs> fact, he was in Calgary at the time. We were talking about this the other day. He he was in Calgary touring with Quebec Symphony or were you were no, solo? No, I was there for uh, doing classes and playing a recital in uh, school there yeah so Blair does a lot of master classes throughout the world and and so he was doing one and I was like hey we're in the middle of Dead Rising 2 production do you think I could fly you over to Van- or to Vancouver to record so we rented like this really carbon fiber cello yeah really lame carbon fiber cello <laughs> in the end it was so loud and resonant we had to put towels over it because it was we couldn't really record it properly yeah, yeah. So we ended up recording stuff like that. And then over the years, same thing, you know, um, different projects. He worked on a lot of different Dead Rising stuff. Even his sister, so my wife's sister, Cammie, who's a, a early music soprano, um, beautiful voice. She sang out a bunch of Dead Rising stuff as well as a dolphin singer and all this other <laughs> kind of stuff. So we've, we have a long history of different genres, different musical styles together. And the thread through it all has been we're brothers but we're kind of soul brothers and more than just that. Um, and so we're able to, like, when we lived in Montreal, Montreal had all these music festivals and, and stuff, and Blair would come up and, and I would go down to Quebec City or Toronto, and we would, we love, like, everything from gypsy, Hungarian gypsy Tarafta Hajduk music. <laughs> so we have a long history there, and then we divert. So I have a lot of interests that are different than Blair's musically, and then he's got a lot of other interests too, so I'll... Do you find that that makes the style uh, when you when you are collaborating? It's just that much more textured and rich, uh, whether that is you know theoretical or whether it's the actual the music itself. I always find it because- just we're, it's like we're discovering. It's constantly learning mm-hmm. and discovering together. So like I, I we rarely have a conversation where one of us doesn't learn a new new instrumentalist or composer from each other. So it's kind of constantly. Uh, New Horizons. Yeah. And we and we always, it's pretty funny even working on the Horizon stuff. Like, it's so hilarious because when you have so many recording sessions together, like day after day or month after month, it's all about having a blast. And so so I'll be like, oh, Blair, can you do a little bit more Sul Ponticello or a little bit this? And then we start making up our own names of like discarding all the Italian names of like <laughs> how to play those textures. And we're like... Oh, so I need a bit more gray. Or... Yeah, can you make it this little more Lord of the Dance? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I agree with you. I know what you mean. With with Emily and I, it's very similar where if you're not having fun and you're you know with each other however many hours a week or a month, it's best to be make it a good time for sure, which you know it helps with that. Oh, yeah. Uh. I'm, I'm waving the bottle in front I, of the camera. I definitely want to hear more about Blair, but let's go ahead and just have a taste together because that's why it's the drink and the music all brought us together. So The ultimate let's, way not to make work work. So we're just going to start with the Yeah, the Cabernet Franc. Thank you. Blair, can you give us the pronunciation of uh, Cabernet Franc? Cabernet Franc. <laughs> And can you tell us the the vintage is twenty eighteen, right? I saw in the photo. And then what's the who's the producer, if you don't mind? Is it the Uru? Uru, yeah, Chateau de okay. Uru, yeah. So for those of you who don't speak French, especially Quebecois French, uh, that's H-U-R-E-A-U. And they are from the Loire Valley, um, when you northwestern France. And if you enter into the Loire River, you've got all these different tributaries. You pass the Muscadet region that's known for white wine. And then you enter into Cabernet Franc and Chenin Blanc country, of which and, and many other grapes too. Uh, but Cabernet Franc is grown quite prevalently in Samour Champigny. What how what does it smell like to you? Lovely, delicious. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I've heard about this producer is that they actually, for this wine that you're drinking, they take 15 different parcels and they they grow all their grapes organically, and they oh, wow. actually go through and they thin the fruit throughout the vintage. So when they see any unripe berries or, or unripe bunches that are not ripening like the other ones or they're you know not positioned quite right, they'll snip them to make all of that photosynthesis power go into the remaining grapes. And so what you're left with when you harvest them, and they're doing it with all native yeast, they're doing it all in stainless steel, is that you're left with quite a rich, kind of a sappier, version of Cab Franc because you just got that much more sugar in the juice. 
to, to ferment. Speaking of sugar, there's the legs are very nice on this. Yeah, so it's got, that means, you know, for those of you listening who can't see the legs, that means it's got quite a bit of extract. It's got quite a bit of viscosity, even though the wine is technically dry. What does it taste like? It smells, it's it's funny, it's like ashen pin cherry. It's kind of weird. It's like, it's, it's a little brighter than usually you get from a Cabernet Franc, I find. Now, do you notice that kind of Pencilletti, green bell pepper, something like autumnal leaves, or something like that mm-hmm. on the earthy spectrum. Yeah, okay, so that's it's very that's earthy. what I, so that's what I was talking about. The methoxypyrazines. That's those are compounds that both of the grapes that both you're drinking and we're drinking here share, and those are those green kind of and then. It branches out into, depending on the grape, it shows itself differently. We are drinking here on our side the Donien Gorondona Belza, which Ondarabi Belza, and yes, pronounce that fast five times if you're driving. <laughs> it's, it's almost worse than texting and driving. Ondarabi Belza is a grape that actually is an offspring of Cab Franc. Cab Franc, and people say, well, how did that happen? Ondarabi Belza is from the Basque country, northern Spain. This this vineyard specifically very close to Bilbao. And what's fascinating is Cab Franc, one of the oldest grapes that we know of today. It's it's um, one of the parent grapes to Merlot, Cab, Sauvignon, etc. Was born. Hold on to your hats, folks. Not in Burgundy. Not in the Loire Valley. Cab Franc is from the Basque country. Really? And so that is why Ondarabi Belza, they don't know who, what other grape is the other parent, but that's why you often see them interplanted still to this day in the Basque country, because at one point they were a natural mutation. So the Basque country, we're in far northern Spain, we're right on the Bay of Biscay, and this specific vineyard, there are three different regions in Spanish Basque country, this is the furthest west. And what do you smell, Emily, when you're oh. smelling the... It's very like dark red fruits, maybe mm-hmm. even some of the stone, like like um, yeah, like pomegranate kind of like just mm-hmm. d- the dark red ones is what I smell for sure. Do you notice that little bit of like either autumnal or some kind of graphitey? Uh, yeah, and for the longest time when people were saying Graphite. that they're the same grape, it's because they do have very similar acidity levels. We talked before the show as we were kind of getting to know each other, Cab Franc and Ondarabi Belza tend to, if they were made the same way, they have medium-ish tannins, you know, they have medium acidity. They tend to have a similar sort of dark cherry color, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. And then they tend to have that, that vegetal quality in common. Which yeah. is pretty cool. Well, cheers. Cheers, guys. Cheers. cheers. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show and to Scores and Pours. Yeah. That's awesome. What I find interesting is it feels quite mature for 2018 in terms of the the finish. Yeah. Like on the on the palette. I, I and maybe that's just typical of Cabernet Franc, but I find that the, the it like it kind of it's very lovely and then it dries up on the palate. Like it just gets I don't know what that is. If well, it's the let me, or let me ask you this. If, if you don't mind checking out the bottle, what's the alcohol content? Five. 13 and a half. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, so when they are picking these grapes with kind of looking for some power in them, so when they've thinned a lot of the fruit and left remaining bunches, yeah. sometimes that can mean that there's such a hefty amount of sugar in the grapes that as the yeasts ferment them, especially natural yeasts, they end up, you know, they'll eat sugar, eat sugar, all the while they're producing alcohol, and you can get a higher alcohol level. Now, it seems in this case that it's that's not the scenario. But a lot of times when you have a fuller-bodied wine, that wine usually doesn't have a lot of acidity. So you those don't tend to age well. And that was what I, I was asking, because if it were a 14.5% alcohol Cab Franc, I, I would say, well, maybe that's why. But uh, maybe it's just that ripeness of fruit, you know, then it has a it's closer to raisining, theoretically, right? If it's riper, it's kind of on its way to raisin, so perhaps that's what's happening in the bottle, you know, giving it that little bit more kind of raisined or or, or kind of tired finish, as it were. Now, Jill, you, you mentioned graphite at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know 
the proper words. I'm trying to. I'll make up words as we go along. You can laugh at me all you like. That's okay. I'm you know what? I, I will never laugh because if I think that adjectives, I, I'm trying to invent a new uh, a new lexicon for wine because it's just so effing boring. I mean, <laughs> because it, in theory, like if we all are talking about the same wine and we all use different adjectives, they're none of us are wrong, right? And I was we were, said this in an interview uh, yesterday that because we were all throwing out different adjectives, but in the end, if someone says something about the weight of the wine, I mean, we can look at the bottle and be like, it's full-bodied or not. So there are certain things about aromatics that it ends up becoming like, how poetic can we be? You know, like, <laughs> it reminds me of graphite in my number two pencil when I was in kindergarten, and I used to bite it, and then I used to hide it from my friend so she couldn't use it. You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> so you can say whatever you want. I will never laugh. Well, in a way, it's really like they're, they're just guide words, right? Especially for people with less less uh, experience or less expertise in, in tasting. Like, they're just they're, they're signposts for us to help us to taste different things, right? Yeah, exactly. And they also, you know, if you're sprinkling in like a packeted yeast to make your wine, if you're not if you're not starting the process in a natural vein, you're adding signatures there. So it's it's sort of like a we were talking about this yesterday as well. It's like auto-tune for voices, Please, right? right? And and then you end up taking away just that that little hint of a I don't know, when something's just out of tune, but it sounds just right. Mm. Yeah. What I find funny is your Ondarebi Belza. The next thing on your diagram in terms of the <laughs> pedigree is fer, which in French, oh, yeah. is, which in French is iron, right? Yeah. So Yeah. For me, the, the, the word that came to my mind right away was sort of ashen. There was something, I don't know, there was something dried about it, that not, not wine dry, but something earthy dry. But also I'm surprised this, this to me tastes like less like dark fruit than what I would expect usually from Cabernet Franc. Like there's something a little brighter about it. Maybe it's the age as well. It's just a bit a bit newer. Or I've drank a lot That's of Cabernet Franc from South Africa. My wife is South African. And okay. so we've done a lot of tastings and visitings there. Uh, it's probably too many, but... Uh, so And they do a, they do a, a little bit bolder Cabernet Franc than, than the French style. Yeah. yeah, and the French are known for, um, you know, when you're tasting for your sommelier certificate, the Cab Francs usually have more of a, a red fruit profile. They used to harvest them at 10 or 11% potential alcohol, so it used to be a lot lighter and brighter. And when we're in South Africa, you know, the climate's different, the sunshine is different, it is a lot warmer depending on the origin that you're hanging out in and drinking from there. So I could see that, you know, being in South Africa and having a lot more deeper notes to Cab Franc. But as you're saying that, I wanted to, now that you mentioned your wife being from South Africa, now I, I, can you tell us about your background and, you know, how you got, how, why did you not choose the violin? Why did you choose the cello, etc.? Well, you know, actually it's odd, the Alexa's first violin teacher, his name was Ernest Cassian. Yeah. He, uh, when I was, my mom was a violin teacher and piano teacher at the conservatory in Regina, uh, in Saskatchewan. And when I was a young, young baby, my mom sort of brought me in to parade me around and show me off a little bit. And this guy who was, he was a very lovely gentleman, but he can be a bit prickly at times in, in the most wonderful way. He came in and, uh, walked up to my mother and she said, oh, this is my son Blair. And he just, without really saying much, grabbed my hand and said, cello hands, and then walked away. And that was the end of that. And so she, she <laughs> oh, thought, really? well, he's, he's, he seems to know what he's talking about and was pretty certain about it. So that was that. So they they bought me a cello and eventually I grew into it. And that was that. Yeah, end of the story. So so when they bought you a cello, could the, could you see you behind the cello? Was I like, were you like just trying to rap your, or did they buy it when you were like 13 or something? When I first started cello, I was five. So I was, okay. they, they, they bought a cello that was a little bigger for me that I grew into eventually, but they also rented one that was like a little tiny, basically a, a, a violin with an end pin in it. That's about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. And how long have you been playing with the symphony? I mean, that, that being symphony? classically trained, yeah, that's such an accomplishment to become principal anything in any major symphony, so that's a, that's a big deal. Well, so you should know, he went straight from Glenn Gould and won the principal position right away at the age of... 24. Wow. He was 24, yeah. yeah, so. yeah. Wow. So I've, I've yeah. been there for 19 years now, yeah. It was, it was kind of strange. The, the, the principal and assistant principal cello, sort of, they, they stepped down a chair each and invited me in. So I was sitting by somebody. My assistant principal was... Uh, uh, he'd been playing for 45 years as principal cello, so was, and I was this sort of really tall, really big 24-year-old brimming with confidence, and, well, he was very gracious, let's say the least. 
So I know you also do a lot of work with chamber music, and we've talked on Scores and Pours a lot about the different, you know, what's chamber music. It's usually one player on a part, things like string quartets, octets, uh, you know, duets, things along those lines. Um, and, and they both feed very different needs for you musically, I would imagine. So if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about kind of the difference between being a symphony musician and then participating in chamber music. Sure. Um, I mean, I think that both of them are, so, for my life anyway, are completely necessary. Like, I can't imagine my life without either one of them. Uh, I do have a small uh, chamber music festival that's it's only about four and a half years old now in, in Quebec City that I started that uh, is growing steadily. Obviously, COVID didn't help it. We had to kind of put things on hold. But this year we have, we've done a, a virtual festival and we'll, we'll try to pick up the rest of it in the fall. Usually the festival happens in June, but that's very much based on string quartets and uh, string quintets. So that's like two violins, viola and cello. So for, for that, the intimacy of that in that music making, first of all, string quartet has probably the most important repertoire of all of the classical music. It's really fundamental to all music in that, that uh, because music is made up generally of three to four voices, whether you do it uh, with four people or you do it with 400 people, it's going to be roughly the same thing. Um, it's going to have the, about the same four voices, but just spread out differently with different instruments that make uh, different color palettes and things like that. But um, string quartet is just, the, it's the foundation of everything we do, essentially. And so we, it's, I, I love playing string quartet as much as it's a, it's a challenge. And most string quartets end in some sort of divorce at one point in their existence. <laughs> because it's so intimate a setting. So to me, the, the ability to communicate sort of one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one, that kind of thing, is the ultimate challenge and the ultimate pleasure. You know, I played for many years with the piano trio, which is violin, piano, and cello. And although it can be done at the highest of levels, it's kind of like three soloists getting together to try to show off a little bit. And it's incredible repertoire as well. But for me, the, the string quartet is, is a really next level, uh, trying to, to, to create the, the high level of artistry, really, to, to create a combine four instruments, four voices, and create one unified voice is a, is a huge, uh, a huge feat. The, the greatest music compositions, we sort of had a couple little exchanges and I told you some of the things that, that drive me these days and which is, it changes about every three weeks. But right now I, I, I love music where you can hear the people in it. So you can really hear the origins of the people. So for me, like to listen to Spanish music is amazing because you can really hear the spirit of the people. And and the same thing goes for, for, uh, for classical music. And so a string quartet that yeah, would one? come to mind would be Sibelius IV, which is Voces Ooh. Intime. Can I, may I ask, Blair, as you're listening to this, how do you, like whenever I'm tasting wine, I love to, you know, obviously we're here we're having a fun, somewhat studious conversation <laughs> about it. But if I'm with my family, who frankly, pardon my French, but they could give two shits about anything that has to do with soil or climate or whatever. Or Sibelius. <laughs> or, yes, exactly. So for me, it's hard to taste a wine and it doesn't matter if it's $12 or if it's 200 and not question things or wonder why or how something was done or decisions that were made. When you're listening to this Sibelius Opus 56, how far in can you get feeling-wise before you start to critique? Hmm. I mean, I think for, for me, uh, some people, I would say probably... Uh, uh, well, no, I, I couldn't categorize it, but for some people, they would say that they 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 immediately enter into the feelings of of music. For me, I'm more of a I, I, although feelings are obviously essential in music making and portraying. I've I've been doing it uh, professionally for so long that I I really my ears attuned to excellence first, mm -hmm. and so when I hear excellent performers doing excellent music. You start to you, you, it starts to bring out different elements that you normally wouldn't hear with less excellence. I'd say. So okay. I mean, we were just listening to te uh, Christian Tetzlaff, who is an incredible German violinist, and uh, 
the moment you hear him play, for me, I hear I hear a, a, a timbre to a sound on the violin that has there's an earthiness to it, and it's, he's he's you can imagine him digging quite deeply into the string without any force without forcing it, but just to to find that earthen quality which is very Sibelius to me. It's like you can Sibelius is probably the composer, the classical composer that is the most identifiable towards his country. Like it's so, mm-hmm. it's so Finnish. And if you are, if you know Finnish people or if you know Finnish authors, there's sort of a dryness and a humor and a quirkiness and curiosity to everything that is so unique that you can, when you start to hear the turns of phrases in in, in uh, Finnish music, there's no other way but to say well, that that belongs to its country. You know, so, mm-hmm. and I think uh, although Tetzlaff is German, I mean, he's obviously one of the greatest living today, and he's he's finding a way to to. To, to sort of enter into that world, which uh, that earthiness and that 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 countryside that's unique to our planet. You know? when we do the podcast, we rarely say, we're drinking Onda Ribibelza, let's listen to Kepa Junquera, right? They're like a new but folk band from the Basque country. Although that's very fun to do together, sometimes there's substance there, but a lot of times there's not. And the, we've made a couple of exceptions, and one of those was we were having smoked beers, oh, and yeah. we, were, we talked about Sibelius. We talked about Sibelius three yeah. And Greg, yeah, because and so they just they sound like their homeland and I think when you have smoked beers that are made the way smoked beers should be made, a lot of times you go to Scandinavia first if they don't taste on trend as it were. So yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, it's funny. I, like even this wine, I don't think I would pair this with Debussy or Ravel. I mean, that's I would probably more likely pair this kind of tasting wine to something like Lalo, which is a little bit earlier French composer, but actually was heavily influenced by Spain. You know, there's a period in, in history where all the Spanish composers are trying to sound like uh, like French composers, and all the French composers like Spanish composers, and yes. and so there's there's a, that, that to me like there's something a little bit uh, there's like an underlying spice to a to a Cabernet Franc that is that is uh, obviously with with Debussy or Ravel you'd probably pair a Burgundy, you know, something that that just is, floats through your mouth and doesn't want to doesn't want to make any loud entrances, you know. Well, and so now I'm thinking, what would I pair this wine with? And part of me wants to go to Mexico. There are a couple Mexican composers that I like, but then part of me really wants to hang out in Ravel country, but like, like chunkier Ravel, not floating, not like, not more ethereal Ravel. And so I can't decide. Like I'm, not, I'm not there yet. Yes. So for all of you that are able to get Donien Gorondona at home, they make about, in a good year, they make about 300 cases. So it's a fairly low production wine. Those images that I sent both of you gentlemen, if you could bring up the image that is of the pergola. So it's uh, the one where the the vines look like they're on stalks and then they're trellised quite high. Yeah, yeah. They're high, really high up, like eight oh feet gosh. in the air. And so this is the pruning that they do, you said? Well, the, so this is the trellising that they do, but this is, they actually didn't do this. These vines have been like this for almost 200 years. Naturally? And naturally, well, originally, back, not, back, but. originally yes. So when these vines were planted, 
prephylaxerous, so they've actually survived the vine louse due to the, the louse that ravaged a lot of other vines, not only in the area, but uh, worldwide. This vineyard is free of it because it has the sea. So high up? Well, the sea is bar a barrier uh, on one side. You know, the louse can't swim. And then there are mountain ranges on, you know, on to, it, to the south. So this vineyard was trained up in this pergola fashion because it's not only 200 years old, the area is very humid. And so this allows for a lot of airflow. 200 years ago, people weren't like, I want a vineyard and I only want to plant it to red grapes because I like dry red wine. They would have to have like cows roaming under there and they right, needed right. to like, you know, have vegetables under there and whatever else. So usually training up in a pergola fashion used to be when you look at ancient Italian ways of trellising vines, Portuguese, uh, a lot of them used this pergola fashion um, because it was function over over fashion, you know? Mm -hmm. Which makes sense. It's very truly organic in the sense that it's just part of your life. Like it's an extension of what you're doing, mm -hmm. right? It's not like you said, this like hyper specified thing. It's it's just incorporated into your everyday life, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and these guys, they're one of the few places in Spain that they have their own still and they make their own distillates and then they infuse their own herbs from their property and around their region into it. Most other places that make that kind of a, a distillate. They kind of just go by the swill of the village and then they spike it with the swill of, that is the <laughs> herbs uh, that come in packeted form. So yeah, th they're a really cool outfit. And you know, this wine isn't that expensive. It's, you know, $28, $29 and it drinks like that and more. It's just got a lot of heart. Uh, the people that run the property, it's two to five of them, depending on the time of year. They're, they're fantastic, fantastic people that are carrying on tradition, which is fun. All right, you should take another sip while I pr play this Lavelle's Ravel. Yes, the twists, the turns, it's unexpected, but it's all within a certain, it's in a certain parameter. Mm. specific pieces is it's some of the most difficult and most satisfying music to play but it's it's phenomenally difficult to, to put together and if you ever we had a, uh, until recently our orchestra had a, uh, a really talented French conductor a Parisian guy and he had such a way for this language and I mean not just because he's French but he just because he had such a, a deep connection to this particular music himself and uh, it was, it was like learning, learning a new language, you know, and, and, and until an orchestra gets used to playing that language, it, uh, it just doesn't work. It's, it feels mm. awkward and clumsy, and, and so it's, it's always a, it's a treat to play great music with great conductors that understand the language really, truly well, and, but it can go terribly, terribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Blair, what do you think, um, you know, when you, as as a symphony musician, I don't know how much control you have over the catalog and what's being played. I'm sure you have a little bit more control when you're doing your chamber music festival and things. So when you find out what's coming up on a season, who are some of the composers that you get really excited to, to play, whether because they write great cello parts or just because you love the music so much? Um, well, a few, a few composers for sure. Are, are staple favorites for me. I love playing Strauss. I love playing Mahler. Richard Strauss. Yeah, Richard Strauss. Strauss. And even Johann, it can be a lot of fun. It's a totally different language, but it can be uh, exquisitely charming. And uh, yes. But for sure, Richard Strauss for me is, 
maybe not the finest of gentlemen, but boy, he could write a great melody and he knew how to pick some wonderful poetry. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Strauss, Sibelius, I love every time. Uh, great cello writing for sure is Brahms. Um, Brass. Yeah. 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 Just there's such, yep. such luscious uh, colors that can be created with, especially with the right conductor. And more and more in the last uh, nine years under the mandate of our former conductor, I'd, I've started to love playing French music, which I've played it under other conductors before. And like I said, it can work or not. And uh, I haven't been quite as endeared to it at different times. But this, this, these last years have been like a huge learning curve for me with and all kinds of French music with Poulenc and with it's, it, it's amazing. But Sibelius and Strauss and Mahler to me and Prokofiev, those are, those are sort of my, ah. my heart throbs. Yeah. How does a, because Emily and I were actually talking about this a few days ago, or might have been a few hours ago, I can't remember. We were talking about composers and how they can coax the best out of people and what qualities that takes. And mm. why, we were actually, if I can interrupt, we were actually talking about that in a big band sense, talking about oh. Benny Goodman's compositions, mm -hmm. talking about the way Count Basie wrote. We, that's how, that's how, that's that how came it started. Up. Yeah, that's but how it yeah, came up. Yeah. But so I'm wondering how, you know, if you were. Uh, you, you obviously liked these French composers and liked the music and could play them, but you weren't just fe feeling it as much as you were under this conductor that you're speaking of. What about this conductor brought that out? You know, I think that... Um, maestro, maestro. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'd be okay with being called that, but but it's uh, I think one of the, the key words that I would say that is typically French, both for the people and for the music, is sensuality. Mm. And I think without sensuality, without comfort within sensuality, you might as well not bother. And I think perhaps there's a bit of a, a North American phenomenon where we, we need to be encouraged that that's okay. You know, it doesn't have to be perverse in any way. It can be just sensuality is, is a natural part of human existence. And uh, the French have certainly become comfortable with experimenting within that in their music and uh, within their, their way of life and speaking to each other and to work with, with uh, someone who, who oozes a natural sense of, of musicality and sensuality towards the music, is uh, that made a big difference for me understanding it. Yeah. What's the name of the conductor? Fabien Gabel. He's a guy to watch. We, we, got, we got lucky to have him for about nine, nine and a half years um, at sort of at the earlier part of his, his, his career. But now um, we certainly couldn't afford him anymore. So we're lucky we had such a great relationship. <laughs> he's, entered, he's entered a different pay grade, I think. <laughs> Him describing all these words for the French, you know, the sensuality, the, uh, I can't remember what the other words that you use, but I just kept on thinking like last night, yeah, last night we went out and we had a great time. All the siblings and their spouses went out and we went out to Thierry, which is like a French liquid chocolate, hot liquid chocolate place last night. And I was like, <laughs> if only every musician in the orchestra before they went to perform was given this spicy liquid hot chocolate before. Yeah. It's like, that's as French as you can get, you know? Mm. Pure pleasure. Mm. When the Aztecs, before they went to hunt, they actually had this kind of paste and that they think that they didn't add water to it other than to just make it into something that they could kind of make a little ball, like we would like an energy bar or energy ball, and they would spike it with a little chili, and that's kind of where that came from, and they would eat it, and of course that would stifle their appetite a bit, but it would also give them a ton of energy, make them really hyper, and then they'd be able to go and hunt and you know withstand not having the, maybe some the calories that they needed on a normal day if they were lucky. That's interesting. Mm. I love wine and chocolate. I don't know if that's if, if that's something I shouldn't have said, but I, I like the combo. I think, 
People can say they, you know, I've I've been known to have like a peanut butter and jam sandwich with <laughs> like with Madeira, like a 1800s Madeira, and I was like, you know why? Because I can <laughs> at like 11 a.m. You know, so hey, whatever. To each their own. I love it. I was working with a a, a really wonderful pianist who's now sadly passed away, but. We were working together to play um, Prokofiev Sonata, actually, and we were playing recital together in Toronto. And um, at one point, I was playing a melody, and I took some time for it. And then later on, I was doing the accompaniment of the same melody, same melody on the cello when he was playing that melody in the piano. And uh, he stopped me, and he said, why, why don't you let me take time there? I let you take time the first time through. I said, well, I think the melody, this and that, and I was giving all these kinds of poetic reasons, and we kind of got into a little de- debate or argument about it, and then at a certain point I said, yeah, but I want to do that because I like it. And he said, ah, that's the best reason you've given yet. Peanut butter jam, because you like it. Why not? <laughs> Why not? There was a, a time also, you know, however many, it was not, not that long ago, and I had a friend over, and we were like going to just kind of on the fly, they had picked up this really delicious, really well-made, but it was like the version of a frozen pizza from this really good place. But it was, in the end, it's a frozen pizza, right? You're putting it in your... And I was like, well, we should we should be drinking... Cha-. It was like Tuesday, and I was like, we should be drinking champagne. And we did, and it was like, that was just the best thing to do in that moment, where we're going to have like Chianti and Pete, you know, no, we're going to beer, no, sorry, I'm tapping the cork. <laughs> you know, Jill, I think I think I want to come and visit you. I like the sound of this. This is... <laughs> there's never a dull moment. It's a there's... judgment-free zone, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say there's hardly a dry moment, but that's not true. There, <laughs> there are plenty of those. That's what that keeps was, us sane after fantastic. all. fantastic. Uh, <laughs> Alexa, I know you're working on a game called Horizon Forbidden West. It's a sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn. Which, I mean, honestly, for for me who loves sci-fi, one of my personal favorite sci-fi kind of end-of-world stories and how they told that story, I just found it really engaging and amazing. So I'm super excited and uh, so happy when I heard you were working on the score. Um, and I know we really kind of can't talk about that right now um, for just reasons of video game secrecy and all. Uh, but I am curious what else you're working on right now. Are you doing any stage music right now? Are you writing any chamber music or, um, yeah, what's going on with that? I'm not writing any other things right now, to be honest with you. I have, so I, I can't remember if we talked about it in an interview, but I started a company about four years ago. Yeah. Called Interleave. And uh, so that I've been really busy with that. Essentially, so in a nutshell, I'm the creative director for Interleave and co-founder. And we have, we basically do music and sound for AAA video games, Netflix musicals, feature films, TV shows, interactive stuff. We even we're going to be working on some VR applications, doing audio for cardiothoracic surgeons and like stress management wow. stuff with music and audio and stuff. So there's a whole wide array of things that we do. Um, I mean, I love writing concert music, particularly the chamber stuff. Like I, I've written a lot for Blair and a lot of other people that I like doing, but I just, in the last four years, I really haven't had time just because I've, it takes a lot to build a company and to kind of mm-hmm. do that. And most of that is, to be honest with you, is so I could lay the groundwork so that when I get older, I can just go back to writing the music that I want to write. And so yeah. I've been really blessed that I can do Horizon and still get Blair and other musicians that I want to involve in those kind of projects. So we get to still make amazing, beautiful music. It's just for now kind of it's a season where it's still really in service of the media or the projects or um you know whatever we have going on so sometimes i'm i do write actually can i tell you blair actually was involved with this one too oh Oh, it's it's nda'd um what i can tell you is it it was a really so there was a, a classic classical piece so a well-known classical piece of music that the game designers were inspired by to develop this virtual reality game. And it's a very novel game design. It's going to be very, very cool. And um, essentially, I was asked to write a kind of an answer or like a variation on that original classical Ooh. piece of music. So I got to write nice. my own version of kind of different light motifs and themes inspired by it, but totally different. And then I workshop with Blair. We did a bunch of kind of improv sessions. So the way we work often, I'm a very quick improver and spitballer. 
So melodies are really simple and very quick for me to come up with. And then I, I'm, I hum it to Blair or I play it to Blair. He plays it back and then we tweak and we go back and forth of, you know, fine tuning, like, you know, what, how do we want this phrase to work? How do we want the shape to work? So we did that. And then I built a whole arrangement around this thing and created an overture, basically kind of an electroacoustic meets classical music overture, um, so, which is extremely exciting for for a, for Blair a, actually per, a performer to get to do because I mean, especially I mean at first it's it's when we first started working together it was like massively intimidating because right. your brain is like it's on fire mm. and it's going at such a on a different wavelength. I mean it's it's kind of like um, in French you say les fils se touchent or otherwise you say you're, the wires are sort of touching together so it's like sparks mm-hmm. going at all the time and uh so you, you try to be a part of what he's doing but it's like it's it's a little bit well it takes us out as a performer who's somebody who usually has a score in front of them and who has everything under control and everything's perfectly planned it takes us really out of our comfort zone in a hurry but with with alexa over time i've learned to to sort of ease into the 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 compositional or the creative process and and uh, whereas i'm not even scratching his surface, I still uh, feel lucky to kind of uh, tread water in his ocean, you know? <laughs> I think it actually kind of does relate to the winemaking. Because if you think of a, a lot of the great wines, a lot of it is just you happen to come across an amazing... It's feel. It's a feel, but you also sure. sometimes it's just it's, it's a coincidence. Like you happen to just have made the right blend or you just happen to have... The sun just happened to come and scorch this terroir mm. at this point and that happened to 50 years later create something in the soil that made the grape mm-hmm. grow this way and do this. So when we create together, and I, I really do like... I think there's a lot of times when you think of maestros and conductors, they have there's this... You know, they're up there, right? Or maestras, they're, they're up there. Same thing sometimes with composers. There's this notion that like, oh, composer, this this person of this stature, and they think this way and do things this way. I honestly, like I was never trained as a composer. I was self-taught. Primarily, I, I learned everything by ear. And then I did, I trained with a composer in Portugal for three months um, when my oldest son was one year old, my wife and I went there and lived there for three months near San Juan de Estoril. And that's where we actually learned to love wine because it was cheaper <laughs> and we got to be near Sintra and all the different winemaking regions in Portugal where we could have like, you know, Vino Verde every day with our fresh sardines that were there from the local market and stuff. And so, so for me, I look at composition very similarly to like a cook. Uh, like mm-hmm. somebody that's making a meal for the first time. Ingredients are common and stuff, but what's interesting is just like, what are you inspired to do in a given moment? So when Blair and I workshop something, sometimes I'll have score prep before. Most of the time, well, it depends. It's, I'm getting better at it because Blair's encouraged me to kind of really hone down my you know writing and orchestration skills so that when we come together and we start improving and trying things out and trying different colors and textures, there's a starting point where he feels a bit more comfortable because of the, you know, the notation on the piece of paper. But then I'm I can push him to be like, okay, forget the music, close your eyes, let's just go into this texture, you know, or let's mm-hmm. just explore this emotion. And then he pushes me also to like. I remember I was doing a piece for the Vancouver Symphony. I did. A, they commissioned me during the Olympics to do like a Golden Nugget, and I was like, Blair, what should I do? I've never written full symphonic stuff before. He's like, okay, go to the library. Go take the Brahms scores out. Go take. <laughs> so I literally like and remember, crash course. Crash course. And I literally, I didn't. I hadn't gone to music school because I wanted to do film school because I didn't want to be bored going to music school and being told how to write. I just wanted to do my own thing, <laughs> which has pros and cons. Right. The con being that yeah. uh, the whole theoretical side I learned after the fact, and I kind of uh, recursively go back and fill in the blanks. Like I remember looking at the Brahms scores and of all these French horn parts and the, and the brass parts. And it was so crazy. Like you listen to these recordings and particularly if you're in the, uh, the symphony hall, you're listening, you know, a hundred feet back and it's so intricate and there's so many counterpoint lines going on, but really you just have this wall of sound that's hitting you. You can't take in the details. You, you can't take, take in the, the details. Yeah. It just comes at you as this big rush of like energy that flows over you. And then I looked at the score and I'm like, oh my goodness, there's like all these, there's so many connections and so many lines that are going on. And you don't, it's kind of like the French music he was talking about where there's, you don't realize how dense these orchestrations can be to create those textures. You just feel it. It's just, it's there's like mm-hmm. waves rushing over you. Kind of like 
the wine on your palate. Like there's just things that just come up and they, and then all of a sudden, oh, I hear this again and I hear this in a new way. And so it was really interesting to be pushed by Blair to look at the actual scores and force myself into an uncomfortable place where where I had to like look at the great scores, you know, and then listen to the different recordings by the different great conductors and hear like, mm-hmm. oh, those are like the, you know, the winemakers or the chefs who they have the same ingredients, but they're making something totally different, you know? Yeah. Um, so we've spent, yeah, a good 20 years developing a musical relationship where, you know, we kind of push and pull and teach each other how to how to hear and listen. And and the ultimate goal is is just to have a great time doing it, right? And we sort of, she asked about what you're doing for stage stuff. I'm just going to put him on the spot a little here. I've asked him before and he's kind of, he, he runs <laughs> he runs away from it as much as possible. But Alex and I also have a bit of a common passion for, for Byzantine music and for uh, different kinds of chant that, that one can hear. And, That's true, we did that last year. Yeah, and uh, one, of the, one of the things that I'd, I'd love, well, we, we did a project where we did um, some recordings uh, that you can hear on my YouTube channel, which is basically chant different hymns, uh, chant hymns from the Orthodox Church uh, for cello and uh, Eson, just for like a single note held. Well, they weren't just straight Byzantine, they were like Syro-Lebanese Byzantine yeah. chant, basically, yeah. which were s- interpreted by Blair. I have some friends that are, are uh, that I know that are acquaintances from 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 throughout my life that are really excellent chanters and things that uh, that that I well, like one of them I called and I said you know there's this amazing hymn from from around Easter that I'd love to to hear what you think of it and uh, and so he just he on his phone he just chanted it for me and and then I listened <laughs> to it and I kind of tried to integrate it and in how I could play it and how I could make it work and then uh yeah but so I'm, I'm trying to convince alexa now to to write a piece for solo cello and uh and byzantine chant which i would also chant because i'm also a, I, I love to chant it uh, byzantine chant as well so. so we're trying to do something where blair could play it you know and, and instead of having like a pedal as an electroacoustic musician that would you know play some pre- a loop, something yeah. a loop before actually have him play and sing and have the resonant cavity of the cello kind of wow. there's symbiotic relationship between both you know uh going on so. it's more of a olex is so busy it's a bit of a long-term project but i'd like to make him you know publicly accountable from time to time <laughs> So I, I think actually, so I mean, I'm totally biased because of the relationship with Blair, but I think he has a very beautiful, unique sound. Um, yes. And um, so it, I'm I'm a champion of his, and I want to continue to encourage other, you know, game composers and film composers and other people to to use him and other musicians like him. Like I'm always looking for voices that are very unique they don't have to be well recognized or whatnot and similar to kind of you know how you find these special wines that you want to share with other people i think it's really important for us to champion voices that have something to share or and especially people who have lived lives that are deep and rich and meaningful that there's lots of layers you know there's that you can peel away so that you you know because i'm not interested in musicians that just or music that just comes up for six months or even a decade. I, I'm, I'm really interested in timeless music and timeless musicians who are tapped into timeless sources, kind of like old wines and or even new wines, but there's a connection to the history, right? So mm-hmm. I think it's really important, you know, I call them golden nuggets. I, I think it's really important for me in my life to find people like yourselves and to be like, hey, what is this golden nugget that you have experienced in your life that you could share with me that will help enrich me and my family and other people and i try to encourage you know blair and other people in the same way to to share those things because i think we're so distracted now in our modern life with 
social media and just the just the pace of life that I think you know when we get a chance to share wine together when we get a chance to eat a meal together when we get a chance to even if we are on the way to a dentist appointment that we don't want to go to like wouldn't it be <laughs> wouldn't it be so much cooler if hey we found out oh this recording conducted by this person of this piece by Ravel you have to listen to this this is 8 minutes that's really worth listening to on your way to the dentist, right? So uh, for me personally, I would say that's kind of um, in the next, you know, couple of years, I'm trying to focus more on, because I don't have a lot of time and I I really try to like pare it down to like the real essential things. And so if it's, if I'm talking to game designers or if I'm talking to film directors or whatever, I'm trying to listen to like, what are those, what, what are those two to three things that they carry with them mm-hmm. where they go? It's kind of like their Walkman, right? Like what, what's on your cassette tape from 1980, you know, <laughs> yep. that you, that's on your, uh, that one tape and kind of try to hone in on that because I think you know, we don't have a lot of time and I think it's important to share those things that feed you and because they could feed other people, right? I would just add to that that like I mean Alexa has always been whenever we work together because we have a very unique setup where I, he he uh, he runs my computer I'm in Quebec City he's in Vancouver so he takes over my setup and then through FaceTime and and him running the session and him using Dropbox as, as much as possible and trying to find we're, we should be getting sponsors from FaceTime and Dropbox true, for this. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the most special thing is that uh, Alexa is always somebody that uh, is ready to connect and so that's. Uh, I've always learned a lot from him that way, and and on top of that, without any regret, uh, I would say that he's probably the most talented person that I know, and I know a lot of talented people. So he uh, he deserves to be um, solicited and exposed. Solicited? Wow, that's <laughs> never heard that before. I don't know if what's happening on your end with the wine, but the Ondarabi Belza right now with time, that kind of pencil-letty, earthy greenness is coming out more. Mm. And that's somewhat common. Think of like when we come in from the cold, we're like really tight. And then when we finally start to warm up, you know, your muscles kind of relax a little bit. And granted, you don't want wine like warm slash room temperature, but with air... Yeah, some wines fall apart, some wines get more complex. With Cab Franc, I feel like it's quite common that that um, methoxypyrazine, those that collection of compounds becomes more distinct. And if we were each smelling each other's wine right now, we would be able to say, oh, wow, I'm really smelling this here and I'm smelling something totally different over there. Whereas at the beginning, they might have been noticeable but kind of nebulous, you know? Jill, do you have like kind of one or two recommendations of, you know, I enjoy wine, but it's, it's really pared down to like, I really like that or no, I don't like that. I don't really mm-hmm. go a lot more layers beyond that. Um, yeah. But do you have a uh, recommendation or like a little tweak or a guide of like, hey, when you are trying to smell for something or when you have it on the back of your palate, like mm-hmm. what what are some guides that you, you know, that you were taught in terms of, what, what should you be looking for? What is it that you're trying to feel? Can you make us a sommelier in three minutes? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can. I can send you a, a pin. You can have my pin. Um, so, yeah, I guess, I mean, honestly, what you said about feeling, Alexa, I, I've actually, when I taste wine now, I look for the complete opposite of what I was taught. Oh, really? Because what you're taught as a sommelier is you're taught to be able to recognize all the profiles and the boxes that everybody tells you are important regions or signatures for grape varietals, which are important. And I think now in the world of natural wine more than ever, a lot of natural wine is is kind of 
aromatically fucked up. You know, it's it's it not in a realm that people can kind of put in a box, and so it becomes very uncomfortable for people that like their comfort zone. And I don't like my comfort zone, so I tend to, when I'm smelling a wine, if I can recognize it, I like that, um, and I can give myself a. a cute little pat on the back if I get something right in a blind tasting. But in the end, then I'm not learning anything. I'm just, I just, that's good that I know that or can recognize it. So I like when I smell something new and I like when I, when you smell wines, at least for me right away, packeted yeast is very noticeable. And so I love when I smell wine, when I smell a wine and I go, wow, this smells like grapes. Oh, when I get that from customers or guests or when I'm when I'm on the service floor, they'll say that and I'm like, yes, hallelujah. <laughs> like, you know, it, it isn't a freaking Blackberry and it's not, you know, all these things. So I, um, I would just say, like, follow your gut, of course, with what you like. But I tend to never buy the same thing twice because I just... Of course, if it's like a new vintage or some, of something or if there's a lot of bottle variation, of course, I want to taste, but I don't... I think because I feel like I know wine so well, I would be much more apt to listen to a, a Richard Strauss movement of a piece a hundred times before I'd go buy a wine three times, you know, really? because there's a lot more there that I'm trying to understand and get my head around. Whereas with wine, it that's a really long-winded answer. No, but that's a, that's a great takeaway. Basically, if I could summarize it is one, go with your gut, two, Always be curious and trying something new. If, is, mm-hmm. if so, do you care about the years and the heat, like this this vintage from this year in this region and this kind of thing, or is that again? It's basically if you feel it, you feel it, and if you don't feel it, you don't feel it. I think that people that are writing like vintage guides is what I think I'm hearing when you're thinking of vintage guides. Well, I'm just guides. thinking like people if you took places- this, if you took the same bottle like the one that you're drinking now. Do you mm-hmm. do you distinguish between oh that was a hot year in 2016 versus 2017? Like do you distinguish? I well yes because in 2018 in Bacchio it was very rainy and so some people say oh I don't this is this wine is I mean you look at wine notes the world over and they'll say oh this wine is dilute and then they give it bad points and I'm like well well so yesterday when I was in a bad mood, does that make me a bad person? Like everybody just has different. So I like to taste a dilute wine because that means I'm tasting what ends up being the signature. I can tell what happened that year versus mm. having it be every year all the you know the same. And when it's like tasting the personality w- of the year, it for it for sure. And I tend to when I look at vintage guides, I've been around the block enough to know that like that means that points are given for ripe usually for ripeness. And ripeness equates to flirting with residual sugar and even in high alcohol. And even though we don't like to think we like that, humans are trained for a fast. So they end up getting, like, when you're at a tasting and you're tasting 500 wines, the ones that always receive the big score from the critics are the 14.5% alcohol, big (laughs) cab. And it's like, well, because that's the only one that made an impression after 500 wines. So I tend to not look at vintage guides too often anymore because I just go off of what I've tasted to get an idea of of a vintage. And then I can tell someone, oh, it rained or it was hot or it was this, but I don't tend to look at a vintage guide and then say, all of 1996 in Burgundy was like this because it's like... Can I ask you a question? Where, where we live in Quebec, the, I mean, almost everything is French wines. I mean, we mm-hmm. it's like we don't, except for the occasional try-hard Pinot that comes from Quebec itself, which actually there's one that's really good from Oka. If ever you get a chance to get your hands on it, it's amazing. In general, it's all French wines, so it's a really different demographic. And then out here we have the Okanagan, and then you guys have a lot of probably the California wines that are really popular there. And um, right now, it seems like the big New World wines, like California wines, are just like kind of taking the world by storm as far as winning prizes and stuff like that. For And I wonder if you think that it's sort of the bigness of them that is running that. It is, and it's the money behind them. And I'm thankful to run in a world that I have like zero attention span for that. So right now, I <laughs> like I taste them because I need to, but I don't ever... It'd be like listening to... Guns and Roses. Good, Ele- Guns and Roses, or I was gonna say like Mozart on Elevator, like and it's on, it's like on repeat. They all they end up all tasting the same, and 
the tasting notes all read the same kind of between the lines. And so I just, I work at a wine shop and actually a really good app if you want to, like I have two apps on my phone. One app is called uh, Raisin and it tells you anywhere in the uh. world to either shop for on or off premise or restaurants that feature natural wine. And, and by natural I, wine, are we talking organic wine or what are we talking about? Nope. So we're talking about the, the, what's happening in the field needs to be sustainable, organic, or biodynamic, but then what we have to hand harvest. Oh, it's hand we harvest. Also, well, then we need to do all native yeast fermentations. And there are up to 60 ingredients that are added to wine in even some of the most expensive wines in the world have mega purple added to them and have no liquid tannins and stuff like that. So natural wine has nothing added, nothing taken away with the exception of the smallest amount of sulfur at bottling if necessary. And even then now there's a lot of people that are sort of posing as natural wine because they know what questions to answer what way, but you can tell they've acidified even though they're low sulfur native yeast. I mean, immediately when you start drinking natural wine or natural, even ish wine, it's like you just never go back. Someone will bring, you know, Chateau Mouton Rothschild from like 2001 to a tasting and you'll be like, cool, awesome. Does anybody want to taste this pet nat from this tricked out orange Greek producer? Like, <laughs> and, you know, and that ends up being way more like, you know, when you, that the texture of that German and the colors of that German was a violinist, right? And yeah. you just heard, it just makes wine a lot more interesting. Hmm. That's awesome. So super fun to, to do this with you. I'm so grateful. Thank yeah, you. it was lovely to learn about the, uh, the, the Basque, you know, source of this grape and this wine and stuff. Here's to scores and pours. Cheers to scores and pours, guys. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Joe Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You can also find on that same website a link to our merchandise, which includes tees and hoodies and corkscrews, etc. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Scores and Pours. You can send us messages on those spots. If you have show ideas or questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you at Scores and Pours on Instagram and Twitter. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Yeah. Yeah.